You're listening to Amazing Discoveries Audio. This is Enter with Christopher Hudson. Hi, my name is Brother Christopher Hudson, and I'm so glad that you can be here with us for another special Amazing Discoveries presentation. Now, before we get into the Word of God, as it is my tradition, I want to invite you to have a word of prayer with me because we need the Holy Spirit to be our instructor. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And you told us in the book of Jeremiah 33 and verse 3, Call unto me and I will answer thee. And I will show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. All true knowledge, wisdom, and understanding comes from thee. And it is your it is your prerogative to give wisdom unto whomever you so choose. We ask that you would bless us to comprehend your word. And as we see the truth that is contained within the scriptures, may it be personally applied to our hearts that we might be prepared to stand in the presence of Jesus Christ when he returns in the clouds of glory. Have thine own way, we pray, for all things we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I want to invite you to open your Bibles, if you have one, to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, and we're going to begin at verse 16. Once again, we're going to Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, and we'll begin at the 16th verse. The Bible says something very interesting there. The preacher of righteousness, Solomon, declared, Moreover, I saw under the sun the place of judgment that wickedness was there, and the place of righteousness that iniquity was there. Now, when Solomon declared that he saw something under the sun, what he's letting us know is that he was observing activities taking place on the face of planet Earth because those things which transpire under the sun are those things which take place here on planet Earth. And so as he was looking on planet Earth, his attention was fixated, first of all, on the places of judgment. We're talking about the court systems of his day, the judgment halls of his day. Those places where men were put in position to carry out and exact the law in justice. These places where men of integrity were supposed to rule over the inhabitants of the land. Instead of seeing men of integrity, men that were just, men that were doing right according to the law, Solomon beheld wickedness. And then, I can only imagine, disturbed at what he beheld in these judgment halls, he turned his attention to the place of righteousness. Now, if you don't know where the place of righteousness is, all you have to do is quickly turn your Bible to Psalm chapter 119 and verse 172, where the Bible declares, My tongue shall speak of thy word, for all thy commandments are righteousness. God's commandments are his universal standard of right doing. And therefore, that organization, or should I say that entity on the face of planet earth that God has committed his law to, that would be the place of righteousness. And when we go to the book of Revelation, chapter 12 and verse 17, the Bible says this, and the dragon, a prophetic symbol of the devil, according to Revelation 12 and verse 9, and the dragon was wroth with the woman. Once again, a prophetic symbol to identify the church. 
and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God, righteousness, and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. My friends, the place of righteousness is the church. God has set his church in this world to promote the principles of truth to all of the inhabitants of planet earth. He has set his church in this world to be a light to the world, to uphold the standards of the kingdom of heaven. They are indeed in word and in conduct supposed to reveal what right doing is according to the mind of God. But instead of beholding righteousness in the place of righteousness, we are told that the preacher Solomon beheld iniquity. Now that's disturbing. That is disturbing. But what is the most disturbing truth of all is that whatever Solomon was beholding in his time, in our contemporary, in our day, we can literally see the same thing going on in the governments of our world and unfortunately in the ecclesiastical bodies, the churches of our world today as well. We can look at corruption on every side. Look to Venezuela. Look to certain regions in the continent of Africa. Can even look here in the borders of the United States of America and we can behold corruption in our court systems, corruption in our governments. And unfortunately, we can as well look into the precincts of our churches and see that instead of the truth going forward, men and women are promoting unrighteousness. And I believe that it should disturb our hearts the same way that it disturbed the heart of Solomon. But the same reaction that Solomon had, I believe as well, should be our reaction. Because the Bible didn't stop in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 16. It went on to Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 17, where Solomon declared, And I said in mine heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. In other words... When Solomon was disturbed with what was going on in the governments of his time, in the court system, systems of his time, and then when he turned to the church and he saw that corruption was prevailing in the church of God, Solomon turned his attention from man and fixed it on the throne of God. And he said, even though men may fail, God will never fail. See, Solomon understood what all of us should understand with clarity. Whether men are in the world or men are in the church, all men are fallible, prone to failure. But God can never fail because he is infallible. And because we can have the full assurance that God is infallible, Solomon stated that he realized that God will one day judge both the righteous as well as the wicked, for there is a time there in the courts of heaven for every purpose and for every work. And in considering the time of judgment, the Bible states this in the book of Revelation chapter 14, beginning at verse 6, And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell upon the earth to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour, the time of his judgment is come. 
and worship him that made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and the fountains of water. My friends, the Bible did not say that the hour of judgment will come. It said the hour of judgment is come. We are now living during the time frame of the judgment of God. And in speaking of this work of judgment, which is now advancing forward in the courts of heaven, God tells us in the book of Peter, 1 Peter rather, chapter 4 and verse 17. The Bible says there, For the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? Once again, a very affirmative, definite statement is being made here. The scriptures do not declare that the time may come that the judgment will begin at the house of God. It says the time is come that the judgment must begin at the house of God. Of God it must start in the church and if you're wondering as to why the judgment must begin in the church the house of God it's because there are some very real legal realities associated with this great controversy that all of us find ourselves embroiled in let me explain this if you go with me in your Bible to the book of uh, John chapter 3 and verse 16 familiar scripture the Bible says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now listen closely to verse 18. Whosoever believeth on him is not condemned, but whosoever believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Pay close attention to that language because it helps us understand why the judgment must begin in the house of God. Let me make it clear. When the truth that Jesus was not just an ordinary man, but he was the Word of God made flesh, literally, God inhabiting humanity. When that truth came to your attention, that God came, took upon himself human flesh, lived a sinless life of poverty, experienced derision, and then gave his life on the cross to pay the ransom for your sins and rose again on the third day that the eternal life that is within him might now be communicated unto you, and you, when you heard this gospel, this good news, declared, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God and he died on the cross for my sins. In essence, what you did when you made that profession is you entered a not guilty plea in the courts of heaven. You said, I'm not guilty. I'm not guilty of the sins that I've committed because Jesus died to pay the penalty for me. Now, anybody that's familiar with the court system knows that if you enter a not guilty plea, you are now entitled to a trial. And during this trial, evidence is going to be presented for as well as against your case to determine 
beyond the shadow of a doubt as to whether or not you're guilty or not. This is exactly the reason why the judgment must begin in the house of God, in the church, because the church is filled with a whole bunch of people, a whole lot of people that have entered in not guilty pleas in the courts of heaven. We're all saying, I'm not guilty. We've made that profession. And so the judgment must begin with us because our cases must be given due consideration measured against the character of Jesus Christ himself to ascertain as to whether or not we are guilty or not guilty in the sight of God. However, those who have not professed a belief in the name of the Son of God, it's as if they have entered a guilty plea in the courts of heaven. And if you know anything about the court system, if you enter a guilty plea, there's no need for a trial. The only thing that you now await is sentencing and the execution of judgment. That is why the judgment must begin at the house of God. That's exactly what the Bible states when you look at John chapter 3 and verse 36. It declares, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that hath the Son of God hath everlasting life. But he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abideth on him. You see that? If you don't believe in the Son, the wrath of God is just hanging over your head until you make a wiser decision. Now, for those of us that are in the church, you know, we have this, uh, we have this thing about ourselves. We like to feel, 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 feel good in our position and knowing the truth and others don't. But I, I hope that you don't feel very comfortable right now as you're listening to this message. Because to be quite frank, it's not a message to make us feel comfortable. Because when you look back at 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 17, when the Bible declares that the judgment must begin at the house of God, it's not actually speaking favorably of those that make up the house of God, the church of God. Actually, it's on the contrary. The language that's being presented there, the tone is not the judgment begins with the house of God. Sorry for those people out there that don't know the gospel. No, it's on the contrary. Actually, the sentiments that are being expressed in 1 Peter 4 and verse 17 is the judgment is going to begin at the house of God. And the majority of us that are in the church, we're not even ready. So what in the world is going to happen to those people that don't even obey the gospel of God? They don't so much believe that there is a God and that his son came and died for our sins. And if you don't believe that those are the sentiments that God is seeking to express to us, then all you have to do is advance forward to 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 18 and read what the Bible states there because it goes on to say, for if the righteous scarcely be saved. I need to say that again. For if the righteous scarcely be saved, wherein shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? The Bible states the righteous. It didn't say the wicked. It didn't say the sinner. It didn't say the person out there that's doing horrible things. It said the righteous will scarcely be saved. And that word scarcely in the original Greek language from whence it was translated, it literally means by a very narrow margin, almost impossibly, the righteous will be saved. My friends, the righteous 
those who are in the church of God, the house of God, that will be saved, they will be saved by a very narrow margin. That's not my words. That's God's words. Now, you might be wondering why. Why is it? Well, if you consider what God has to say about his church here in these last days, it begins to become clearer to the mind. In Revelation chapter 3 and verse 17, when God speaks to Laodicea, I share this with you in another presentation, and speaking of our characteristics, this is what he says, Because thou sayest I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. The first thing that God has to say concerning the character of those who make up his house, his church, in these last days, he looks at us and he says, you think you're rich? You really think you're rich? And you know what the Bible says about the rich man? If you don't know what the Bible says about the rich man, all you have to do is open your Bibles to the book of Luke chapter 18, Verse 25, it says, Therefore, it is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to finagle himself through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the presence of God in the courts of heaven. And the general condition of God's church today, our general condition is that we think we're rich. We think we're okay. And that's the reason why we live the lives that we live. That's the reason why we're not daily seeking to lay hold upon righteousness, daily seeking to enter into closer communion with Jesus Christ, daily seeking to know his word better, to share it more perfectly, to be like the one whom died so that we can be with him. We're not seeking after him in this fashion because we think we already have him. We think we're okay. We think we're rich. And that's why the majority of us that will actually make it in, it's only going to be by a narrow margin. Why? This is how Jesus states it. In the book of Luke chapter 13, Luke 13 beginning at verse 23, it's very interesting. As Jesus was communing with the multitude, as often he did, he was preaching, teaching, sharing parables helping them understand that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. There was one in the multitude, as he was listening to the words of Christ, it's evident that conviction began to set in and grip his heart because the question that he presents to Jesus in Luke chapter 13 and verse 23 is a question that only comes from the lips of a man that has been convicted. The Bible says, and one said unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? Serious question. That's a solemn question. Lord, are there few that be saved? Solemn question presented to Jesus Christ. And then Jesus turns around and gives an even more solemn response. The Bible goes on to say, and he said unto them, strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter therein and shall not be able. And I don't know if just in the first consideration of that scripture, you grasped 
the magnitude of this response that came from Jesus Christ. But let me reiterate it so that you can literally take the, so that you can really take the time to consider this. The man asked Jesus, Lord, are there few that be saved? Jesus turns around and says, strive to enter in. Strive to enter in at the straight gate because many will seek to enter in and shall not be able. It's almost as if the interaction went like this. Lord, are there few that be saved? And Jesus turned around and said, many are going to be lost. Why are many going to be lost? Many will be seeking to enter in, but they won't be able to enter in. So where do the many go? Where do the many go? Matthew chapter 7 and verse 13 gives us the answer. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 13, the Bible says, Enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way that leadeth to life, and few there be that find it. The many enter the path of destruction. Many. While they're seeking to enter into eternal life, they actually happen upon destruction. That's a serious, serious statement. But both of them made by Jesus himself, so it must be true. What do you think convicted this man to even ask a question of that nature? Lord, are there few that be saved? There had to be something that Jesus said to the multitude that stirred up conviction in this man's heart that made him present this inquiry to Christ. Lord, are there few that be saved? What was the question? What, what was the... Where did the conviction come from? that gave birth to that question. Look at Luke chapter 13, beginning at verse 1. It's very interesting. Scripture says there, there were present at that season some Galileans who told him, <laughs> there were present at that season some who told him, rather, of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So there were some people coming there gossiping to Jesus. They're saying, Jesus, did you hear of those Galileans that Pilate slayed and he mingled their blood with their sacrifices? Oh, that was horrible. They must have been wicked people. That must have been the judgment of God falling upon them, Jesus, wasn't it? But Jesus turns around and looks at them. And he said unto them, Think ye that these Galileans were sinners above all Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, nay. But except you repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Or the eighteen upon whom the tower of Shalom fell and slew them all. Think you that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, nay. But except you repent, ye shall all likewise perish. He wanted everybody that was listening to understand that they were in a predicament that they did not comprehend. They thought they were in a better spiritual condition than their peers because certain evils did not fall upon their lives. So they thought that the blessing of God was upon them, but God was letting them know. When I say God, I mean the Son of God, Jesus Christ, standing right there in their presence, 
He was letting them know. You think you're in a better spiritual condition than these individuals because these things happened to them and you think this was the wrath of God falling on them? Well, the wrath of God is getting ready to fall upon you if you don't repent of your sins. And then to illustrate this more so that they could not miss it, the Bible says, and he spake also a parable. There was a certain man that planted a fig tree in his vineyard and came and sought for fruit thereon and found none. Then said he unto the dresser of the vineyard, Behold, these three years I came seeking for fruit on the fig tree and found none. Cut it down, why cumbereth it the ground? Then the dresser of the vineyard said unto him, Let it alone this year also till I shall dig it about and dung it. And if it bear fruit, then well. But if not, then afterward, thou shalt cut it down. Here it is. A man plants a fig tree in his vineyard faithfully every day for three years. He's looking for fruit on his fig tree. What does he find? Absolutely nothing. He's tired of it. He says, you know what? This fig tree is cumbering the ground. It's just taking up space where we could plant something that would actually bear the fruit that we desire. Get rid of it. It's just wasting space. But the dresser of the vineyard responds and says, let's give it some more time. I'm going to dig about it. I'm going to fertilize it some more. I'm going to give it some more nutrients. And then if it bears fruit, then, then, then well, it's, it's good. But if not, then, then afterwards, let's cut it down. Now, if you haven't if you haven't already figured out what that fig tree was a symbol of, let's make it plain. It was a symbol of God's people. His church. Interesting enough, Jesus was ministering to the Jewish nation for three years. For three years he was praying. For three years he was healing. For three years, he was preaching. For three years, he taught them. For three years, he wept over them. For three years, he invited them to be participants in the kingdom of heaven, to lay hold upon salvation. And for three years, they refused him. He said, give it one more year. One more year. And anyone that knows anything about a fig tree, a fig tree doesn't take a 12-month... A fig tree only has half a year for its growing season. My friends, three and a half years is the time that Jesus ministered to his people. And he was letting them know in the language of that parable, that the probation of the Jewish nation was getting ready to close. It was soon to close. That the Messiah was soon going to finish his work, and if they did not accept the work that the Messiah came to accomplish in their midst, if they did not embrace it, then the rest of the prophecy concerning them would also come to pass, and that would be they would be cut off at the end of that prophetic week spoken of in the book of Daniel, chapter 9. My friends, listen. There was somebody listening in the multitude, and as he listened to that parable, he realized, hold on a second, God is talking. 
God is talking through this man. See, because he didn't truly realize who he was talking to was not just a regular man, but it was the Son of God himself. He realized God is speaking to us right now, and he began to realize it seems as though our probation is getting ready to close and judgment is getting ready to be executed on us. And therefore he declared, Lord, are there few that will be saved? And Jesus said, it's time to strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter therein and shall not be able. And then Jesus presents another parable. He declared, when once the master of the house is risen up, and have shut to the door, and ye begin to stand without and to knock, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us. And he shall say unto you, I know you not whence ye are. Then shall ye begin to see. We have eaten and drunk in thy presence, and thou hast taught in our streets. But he shall say, I tell you, I know you not, when ye are, depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. He said, one day the master of the house is going to rise up. When he rises up, he will shut the door. When he shuts the door, multitudes will stand without and begin to knock and begin to ask for entrance, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us, but they will gain no entrance. I find it very interesting because these people that gain no entrance, the Bible first says they seek to enter therein. They are not able to. Once they seek to enter in and, not, and are not able, then they begin to knock and they also ask for entrance. I'm pointing this out because in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, Ask and it shall be given unto you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. They do all three of these things. They seek they knock, they ask, they gain no entrance though. Why? Something has happened. Something has happened. There's been a radical shift in the plan of God that now makes all of their attempts to enter into the kingdom of heaven worthless. What is the radical shift? The master of the house has risen up. And they can say, Lord, Lord, as much as they want to, but they'll gain no entrance. Who is this master of the house that they're saying, Lord, Lord, unto? Well, in the book of Matthew chapter 7, Matthew the 7th chapter, and look with me quickly, Matthew chapter 7, and I'm looking at verse 21. The Bible says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, Jesus said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but who that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. So the master whom they say Lord, Lord unto, it's Jesus. One day Jesus will stand up and shut the doors of the house. What house will he shut the door of? The Bible tells us in John chapter 14, beginning at verse 1, Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. Do you believe in God? Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Jesus currently is in his Father's house. 
We're told he's the master of the house. And he's not there aimlessly floating around on clouds as some people might think. Jesus is right now actively engaged in preparing a place for us. There is enough room in the kingdom of heaven. There is enough room in his father's house for every person that desires to be saved. He's actively engaged in this work because he wants each one of us to be exactly where he is and be with him where he is forever. But where exactly is he in his father's house, which is in heaven? And what exactly is he doing to prepare a place for us? The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 8, beginning at verse 1, Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest, speaking of Jesus Christ, we have such an high priest which is set at the right hand of the throne of the majesties in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. Jesus currently is in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. He is set at the right hand of the Father. He is set at the right hand of the majesties, the throne of the majesties of heaven. When the Bible says that he is set there, it means he's seated. He's seated in the throne with his father. What is he doing? He is acting as our high priest interceding for us. But one day, Jesus will no longer be seated in that throne. The Bible says one day the master of the house will rise up and shut the door. Now, we know that Jesus is our high priest. We know he's seated in the throne of God, and he's located with his Father in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary, the true tabernacle which God himself pitched. And not man. But does Jesus have the authority to open the doors of the sanctuary to humanity as well as to shut the doors of the sanctuary to humanity? The Bible is not uncertain concerning this topic. In the book of Revelation, once again, chapter 3, beginning at verse 7, this is what the Bible says. To the angel in the church of Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. Jesus is the one that is holy. Jesus is the one that is true. And the Bible says he possesses the house of the key of David. A key in Bible prophecy is a symbol of authority. This key has given Jesus the authority to open. And when he opens, no one has the ability to shut it. But when he shuts the door, no one can open it. Because he possesses the key of the house of David. He possesses that authority over the house of David. And the Bible literally tells us in symbolic language we're on the physical personage of Jesus Christ symbolically that the key of the house of David was placed. This is critical. In the book of Isaiah chapter 22 and verse 22, the Bible says this, And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder so he shall open and none shall shut and he shall shut, and none shall open. 
the authority over the house of David, the key of the house of David was placed upon his shoulder. In the Bible, the shoulder is symbolic of a place where one bears burdens. In other words, the burden of the authority over the house of David was given unto Jesus. You know something else that was placed upon the shoulder of Jesus Christ? It's in the book of Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. It says there, unto us a child was born, unto us a son was given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, my friends, I hope you realize what we've just learned. The Word of God is letting us know that Jesus possesses the authority. He has been given the burden to give men and women access into the government of God, access into the kingdom of God, and he's also been given the authority to shut the kingdom of God so that no man, woman, nor child can gain access into the kingdom of heaven. That authority has been committed unto Jesus himself. Why? Because he has the key of the house of David. The Bible also says this, and I want you to look at this closely, concerning the house of David. Going to the book of Psalm, chapter 122. Psalm, the 122nd division. That's right. And I want you to look with me at verse 5. It says, For there were set thrones of judgment, thrones of the house of David. Jesus has been given the authority to begin the work of judgment. He's been given the authority to finish it. And when he stands up, like the Bible says in the book of Daniel, chapter 12 and verse 1, and at that time, Michael, the one whom is like the Most High God, the one whom is the archangel, the chief of the angelic host, the captain of the armies of heaven, and at that time, Michael will stand up the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was. And when that time of trouble commences, people are going to be feverishly seeking to gain entrance into the kingdom of God, but they shall not be able. What a solemn thought. Jesus declared back in the book of Luke chapter 13. He said, There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when ye shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves are thrust out. My friends, solemn events are right before us. Jesus is getting ready to stand up. The work of judgment is getting ready to come to its conclusion. And like that man that was in the multitude, we should be asking, Lord, are there few that be saved? Lord, shall I be saved? You know what I find so interesting? When the people knock, and they beg and they say, Lord, Lord, open unto us. The response that comes from Jesus Christ is, I know you not whence ye are. But they don't allow that response to immediately turn them away with discouragement. They have 
an argument that they are going to present that they believe is sufficient to gain them entrance into the kingdom of God. You know what that argument is? It's right back there, Luke chapter 3, 13. They said to Jesus, oh no, Jesus, you do know us. Master, you know us. We have eaten and drunk in thy presence, and thou hast taught in our streets. <laughs> I wonder why they thought that was a powerful argument to gain them access into the kingdom of God. Realize now, life, this is, this is a life and death situation right now. So whatever they're saying, they think this argument surely is going to gain us access. We've eaten and drunk in your presence. We've taught, you taught in our streets. Let us in. What did they mean by that? We have eaten and drunk in thy presence. Thou hast taught in our streets. If you turn your Bibles to the book of Luke chapter 17, and I believe you begin at verse 7. That's correct. The Bible says, But which of you, having a servant, plowing or feeding cattle, will say unto him when he has come from the field, by and by, go and sit down to meet? And will not rather say unto him, Make ready wherewith I may eat, and gird thyself, and serve me. Till I have eaten and drunken, then afterwards thou shalt eat and drink. Doth he thank that servant because he did all those things that were commanded him? The answer is, I trow not. Or in simple language, I think not. If you haven't gathered what's going on here, let me make it plain. When the people are saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us, then when they say to him, we have eaten and drunk in thy presence, they're literally saying to him, Lord, we're your servants. We've been working in the vineyard for you. Didn't you see the Bible studies that we did? Didn't you see the literature that we gave out? Lord, didn't you see the uh, medical missionary work that we did? Uh, Lord, you didn't, you, didn't see the, you, didn't, you didn't see the you didn't see the donations I gave for evangelism? I've been working for you, Lord. You know me. They actually think that their works merited them to receive the admonition from Jesus, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. They think, they thought that their works, no, let me say it this way. Many of us think that our works will gain us access into the kingdom of God. But the Bible went on to say, doth he thank that servant just because he did those things that were commanded him? The answer was, I trow not. My friends, it's like having a toaster. Have you ever, have you ever had a toaster? Imagine you have a toaster. If you have a toaster and, and you put some bread in that toaster and um, it gives you some nice golden brown toast, I mean like perfectly brown, perfect texture, do you, do you take the toast out of your toaster and look at the toast and say, oh, this toast is amazing. This, this is the best toast. You, you're the best toaster. There's no other toaster in the world like you. Oh, God, I'm so glad I have you in my life, toaster. Do you say something like that? No, of course not. Why? It's a toaster. You bought the toaster to make good toast. And if it didn't make good toast, what would you do? You'd get rid of that toaster and get another toaster that would produce the toast that you wanted. Period. 
brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, it's the same for us. It is our privilege, our blessing, and our honor to serve God. To do Bible studies, to do evangelism, to, to share literature, to try to bring people to Jesus Christ, that is our responsibility. It is our honor to be engaged in that work, and it does not merit us anything from the hand of God. It's our duty to do it. That's why the scripture went on to say in the book of Luke chapter 17, therefore, after you have done all these things, say, I am an unprofitable servant. I've only done those things which it is my duty to do. It is our duty to fear God and give him glory. And it's because of his grace that he blesses us. But these people, they think that works merit their entrance into the kingdom of God. But they don't stop with that argument. They also say, not only have we been working for you feverishly day and night, Lord. Oh, Lord. They go on to say, thou hast taught in our streets. Now, the reason I find that one so interesting is if you look at that word streets in the original Greek language from whence it was translated, it's a feminine form of a word that means a wide place. It's from a masculine form of another word, which means a broad place. And you can only find that word one other place in the Bible. It's in Luke, Matthew, rather, chapter 7 and verse 13. Enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. If you haven't picked it up as of yet, what's going on here is that these people actually think they're walking with Jesus. They actually think they're having intimate communion with Jesus Christ as they're walking in the broad way to destruction. I want you to look at the screen with me right now because what I want to share with you is a vision, a vision that was given to Sister Ellen G. White, truly Holy Spirit-inspired messenger of God. And she speaks concerning this very subject matter that we've been looking at. Look at this. These roads are distinct, separate, in opposite directions. One leads to eternal life, the other two eternal death. I saw the distinction between these roads, also the distinction between the companies traveling them. The roads are opposite. One is broad and smooth, the other narrow and rugged. So the parties that travel them are opposite in character, in life, in dress, and in conversation. Distinct in every respect. Totally distinguishable. Nothing to be confused. Their characters are different. Their life is different. Their dress is different. Their conversations are different. Now all you need to do is superimpose this upon yourself right now. And if you're honest with yourself, you'll be able to determine what road are you on. 
Is your character different from those that are in the world? Do you live a lifestyle that is different from those that do not profess to believe in Jesus Christ? Do you dress differently from those that are in the world? Are the things that you like to converse upon different from those that know not God? Those who travel in the narrow way are talking of the joy and happiness they will have at the end of the journey. Their countenances are often sad, yet often beam with holy, sacred joy. They do not dress like the company in the broad road, nor talk like them, nor act like them. It's evident that the distinction between these two companies was so dramatic. I mean, it was so clear that she had to highlight it a second time. There's just a clear distinction. God has a people that will be distinguishable in this world. My friends, it went on to say a pattern has been given them, those that walk in the narrow way. A pattern has been given them. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief opened that road for them and traveled it himself. We're talking about Jesus. His followers see his footsteps and are comforted and cheered. He went through safely, so can they. If they follow in his footsteps, as long as we keep our eyes on Jesus and by faith are willing to follow in his footsteps, or in other words, by faith are willing to follow his example of life, of speech, of dress, of conversation, as long as we're willing to put our hands in the hands of Jesus, we have nothing to fear. In the broad road, however, all are occupied with their persons, their dress, and the pleasures in the way. They indulge freely in hilarity and glee and think not of their journeys and every day. They approach nearer their destruction, yet they madly rush on faster and faster. Oh, how dreadful this looked to me. Literally rushing to their destruction. I saw many, many traveling in this broad road who had the words written upon them dead to the world the end of all things is at hand be ye also ready they looked just like the vain ones around them except a shade of sadness which i noticed upon their countenances mark that they have some words written on them dead to the world the end of all things is at hand be ye also ready their conversation, however, was just like that of the gay. This is an antiquated term that they were using here for happy. Thoughtless ones around them. But they would occasionally point with great satisfaction to the letters on their garments, calling for the others to have the same upon theirs. They were in the broad way. Yet they professed to be of the number who were traveling the narrow way. Those around them would say, there is no distinction between us. We are alike. We dress and talk and act 
alike. Here they are, walking in the broad road to destruction, yet they have a vain profession that they're servants of God. And they have the audacity from time to time to look to the rest of the individuals that occupy the broad road with them, and they say, you know what? You need to have the same letters on your garments that we have on our garments because we believe we're dead to the world. The end of all things is at hand. Be ye also ready. And the other people in the world are looking at them saying, you're just like us. There's no difference. You talk like us. You dress like us. I wonder if they can say the same thing. I wonder, is this speaking about you today? If you were to go into your workplace right now to tell people about Jesus, when you walked away, would your co-workers stand around the cooler and say, are they really telling me about Jesus? This guy, this lady comes in here and she just drags her husband through the dirt. This guy talks worst about his wife. He talks worst about... This, this guy is a bigger flirt in the office than anybody else. The clothes that she wears, I wouldn't even wear to the nightclub. I wouldn't even let my child play the same video games that they let their children play. And they want to tell me about Jesus. He's the first person to get upset. My friends, could this be talking about you? Is there a marked distinction between your life, your dress, your conversation, your character from everything else that can be seen in the world? Or is there no distinction? Jesus is coming, and he will find a people conformed to the world. Jesus is coming. And will he find a people conformed to the world? And will he acknowledge these as his people that he has purified unto himself? Oh, no. None but the pure and holy will he acknowledge as his. Those who have been purified and made white through suffering and have kept themselves separate, unspotted from the world, he will own as his. Only those will enter. Only those. It's a solemn message. So how do we gain entrance? Jesus actually gave us the answer back in Luke chapter 13, beginning at verse 23. I want it clear in your minds. When the man came to Jesus and said to Jesus, Lord, are there few that be saved? The Bible says, and he said unto them, strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter therein and shall not be able. And there is the answer to our dilemma. The Bible told us that many will seek to enter in and they will not be able to enter in because they're only seeking. But Jesus said, strive to enter in. There's a difference between striving and seeking. 
Striving means that you will give all to obtain a goal. Nothing is too precious your interest, your earnest energy, your time, your mind will be fully engaged in laying hold upon that which your heart has set itself upon if you are striving. Strive to enter in at the straight gate. Strive. Don't just seek. People come to church week after week they're all seeking a relationship with Jesus, but few are striving. Let me make it plain. Let me close this up. If you go with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians, the ninth chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and I want you to look with me now at verse, let's look at verse 24. Matter of fact, let's just go to verse 25 for the sake of time. The Bible says this. For every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. Now here, Paul is actually using the analogy of people engaging in athletic activities to give us an understanding of the type of discipline that should be exhibited in our Christian walk. He says, these individuals out here that are simply seeking to be the fastest runner, the highest jumper, the best basketball player, the most renowned uh, footballer, these individuals, if they want to have the mastery, if they want to be the best in their chosen uh, sport or athletic contest, they have to be temperate, disciplined in all things. And you know that for a fact. My friends, if you've ever seen a, an Olympian practice or you've ever seen a world-class class athlete train, these people are disciplined. The very time early in the morning when we should be up praying, studying our Bibles, they're up beginning their workout. Why? Because they're striving. Interesting enough, many of these athletes have transitioned from a flesh-meating diet to a total plant-based diet because they've come to understand that eating a plant-based diet ministers to them being able to operate at optimal performance. And so they take up a plant-based diet. They become vegans total vegetarians. And they do it simply so they can be the best athlete they possibly can be. And they don't even like it, some of them, to be quite honest. And the reason I know that some of them don't even really like it is because they have what they call cheat days. You don't cheat on something that you love. They can't wait. No, today I'll have a hamburger, then it's back to my diet. If they really loved that plant-based diet, they wouldn't have cheat days. But they... <laughs> they subject themselves to this discipline because they want to have the mastery. What about us? 
Are we not willing to discipline ourselves and say, I'm going to go to bed early so that I can wake up early and spend time with God so that his word might be hidden in in my heart, so that I might commune with the Lord, so that he can impart unto me grace, so that I might have strength to go out into the world and live a life of victory in Jesus Christ, so that others might see my living example and glorify my Father which is in heaven? Because the Bible said, Let your light so shine before men that they might see your good works and glorify thy Father which is in heaven. Are you willing to strive? Most of us don't want to do that. But my friends, those that will be saved in the kingdom of heaven, they will strive. And I need to make something very clear. I am not by any shape, form, or fashion trying to insinuate that by one's works they will be saved. No. What I am sharing with you right now is the fact that if we love Jesus and we desire to be like Jesus so that we can be with Jesus, we must love him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and we must be willing to surrender everything that could disconnect us from him and all those things that will minister to us being closer to him with all that God has invested in us by his grace, we should exhibit power that comes from on the high to strive to be in the kingdom of heaven. Paul said, everyone that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. Then he goes on to say, so run I not as uncertainly. Imagine, my friends, Imagine you're standing at the starting line. You know, there's a race getting ready to go on. The competitors are there. The starting gun is getting ready to be shot off. Ready, set. The gun goes off and everybody runs this way and you run that way. There's something wrong with that picture, am I not right? If you're going to run a race, shouldn't you at least know where the finish line is at? Many of us are running this race uncertainly. On two accounts, we have lost focus of the finish line, the goal, the objective of this race or this life that we're living as professed Christians. And secondly, many of us even if we do remember, oh yeah, the goal is to be like and to be with Jesus, we run the race with uncertainty. We run the race with doubt in our hearts. Imagine a runner, and as he's starting the race, in his his heart there's doubt as to whether or not he can even finish the race. That person, I can assure you, will never win that race because they're doubting their ability to even finish it. And that's how many of us live this Christian walk. 
We say, I know that the, the goal is to be like Jesus and to be with Jesus, but you doubt as to whether or not the power of God is sufficient in your life to give you victory over your sins so that you can obtain to the purpose for which God brought you into existence, and that is to reveal his glory. You doubt it. So you're uncertain on two accounts. Many, I mean, some people are uncertain on two accounts. They don't, they forgot where the, where the finish line is and they don't even think they can reach the finish line even if they know where the finish line is. Now that's a whole lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of people in that position as well. But Paul says, I don't run. So run I not as uncertainly. He knows where the goal is. He knows what the objective is and he believes that God's grace is sufficient for him. He believes that by the power that God has made available through the indwelling of his spirit, he can obtain to what God has created him to be. Do you believe that? With all of your heart. You can't run this race with uncertainty. You must trust in the ability of God to finish the work that he began in you. And you have to keep your eyes on Jesus. Then he says, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. <laughs> now he appeals to our knowledge of pugilism, boxing. Now, have any of you ever uh, seen the likes of a one such as a Mike Tyson when he was in his prime? I know people like to act like they don't know what you're talking about. Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson when he was in his prime. Or Muhammad Ali, one of these champion boxers. Imagine, I have to appeal to Mike Tyson though. Imagine if you went into the ring with the likes of a Mike Tyson in his prime. When they called him Iron Mike. And you had to get into the ring with Mike Tyson for some strange reason. And you, you hit gloves with him. And now you go into your corner and you know the bell is getting ready to ring. And you're thinking in your mind, the bell is getting ready to ring. In a few minutes, I have to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Mike Tyson. When that bell rings, I'm going to come out of this corner. And I'm going to run right at Mike Tyson. And with all of my might, I'm going to punch him right in his elbow. What in the world do you think is going to happen next? My friends, let me tell you something. You might punch him right in the elbow, but he's going to try to take your head off because he's in the ring and he's trying to kill you. And the interesting thing is the analogy that is being presented here, it actually, it actually is not even sufficient to illustrate the contest that each one of us are engaged in on a daily basis. See, my friends, we literally have an opponent that each one of us have to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with day by day. And this opponent is not trying to play games with you. The singular objective of this opponent is to kill you, period, dead on sight. I'm talking about your own flesh. Your own flesh is seeking out your destruction. And many of us 
We fight this fight against our flesh and we do it uncertainly. We come out swinging in this direction and that direction. Matter of fact, sometimes we just wake up in the morning and we seek to go right about our way. My friends, our flesh has already run the match. If you get up in the morning and you just uh, jump on your phone and check your emails and jump in the kitchen, get something to eat and jump in the shower and jump in the car and go, you're dead already. D-O-A. Because you have not received the power that you needed. You have not received the power that you needed to enter into the contest with your flesh for that day. The first thing we must do when we are conscious is get right on our knees and pray. And when we pray, we cannot pray these, these prayers that are absolutely worthless. Because when we pray these worthless prayers, It's just like we're fighting this fight uncertainly. Listen, each one of us know what sins we're struggling with in our lives. It may be pride. It may be backbiting. It may be appetite. It may be uh, fashion. It may be greed. Maybe anger. Maybe masturbation, pornography. Huge in this age. Maybe some sort of addiction, marijuana, alcohol, etc., etc. We know exactly what sins we're dealing with. When we come to God in prayer, we must pray concerning those very sins which we know will be the very means of our destruction if we do not gain the victory over them. Literally, take them off by the head. We have to come to God and say, God, I've been struggling with this sin. And I know today, if I do not receive grace, power from your throne, so that I can gain the mastery over this sin by faith in Jesus Christ, I am going to be whooped by my flesh today. So, Lord, please fill me with your presence and give me the victory over the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. Now you're swinging for the head. Paul says, I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest by any means after I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Strive to enter in at the straight gate. And so in closing, the Bible says, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12 and verse 1, Seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run with patience the race that is set before us. No. Seeing we also are compassed about with such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the, of the throne of God. Ye have not yet 
resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Consider him who endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye become wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. God says he wants us to run this race before us, and he wants us to run it with patience. But if we're going to run this race with patience, if we're going to be victorious in this race, we have to follow the counsel of God. We have to follow his counsel. He says, lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily besets you. Now, the weights are not defined as sins. It's something distinctly different. Those weights don't necessarily have to be sinful practices. It just has to be something that is a weight, something that weighs you down. Everyone that is familiar with running races knows that you don't want to have additional weight on you when you're running a race because it just wears you down and it ultimately impacts your finishing time. So if you have too much weight on you, it just wears you down and it impacts your time. Question, are there things in your life that may not necessarily be sinful, but they're taking up your time unnecessarily? And they're wearing down your mental faculties and your ability to actually ascend higher on the ladder to glory. What's eating up your time? Is it social media? What's eating up your time? Is it a young man or a young woman or an older man or an older woman? What's eating up your time? Is it you trying to put in extra hours at the job so that you can get some other special trinket so that you can be better than your neighbor? What's taking up your time? Is it the video games? What's taking up your time? What's eating up that vital time and tearing at your vital energy, rearing you down so that you can't run this race with patience? We need to fix our eyes on Jesus. Consider him. How he prayed that he might gain victory over the longings of his flesh that did not want to go to the cross of Calvary to die to provide a sacrifice for our sins. He sweat great drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, resisting the flesh for us. But we... We have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Consider him. As we look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, strive. Strive. Strive to enter in at the straight gate. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, that in Jesus Christ there is power for us to gain the mastery over every hereditary and cultivated tendency towards sin. We are thankful that you have warned us of the things that are soon to come if we do not repent and turn away from our wicked ways. 
We're thankful for your encouragement to strive for excellence by faith in Jesus Christ. And so we are praying that you would help us by your might and by your might alone to run with patience the race that is set before us that leads to glory. Thank you for hearing our prayers. For all these things we ask in Jesus' name and for thy name's sake. Amen. Amen. If this episode impacted you, please share it with others. Amazing Discoveries is a donor-supported ministry. To help us keep producing content like this, visit AmazingDiscoveries.org. And, as always, you can find the visual presentation of this episode on ADTV.watch.